Ванной шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердце нашей земле... Hello, and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support the podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog, or to the podcast website, srbpodcast.org, and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. This week's podcast is the second in a two-part series on migration from Central Asia in Russia's past and present. Why control migration? Most people would say to control the inflows of undesirables into a country. My guest, Koresh Schenk, has a more interesting answer, at least in the case of Russia. Controlling migration allows Russian bureaucratic and regional elites to use the scarcity of labor, the growth of illegal immigration, and anti-immigrant populism as resources for local and federal patronage. Migration management in Russia is a window into how public policy, the federal system, and patronage are used to manage conflicting demands. This multi-level balancing act demonstrates the importance of high-level politics, institutional interests and constraints, and the conditions under which government actors at all levels can pursue their own interests as the state seeks political equilibrium. Koresh Shank is an assistant professor of political science at Nazarbayev University, specializing in the politics of immigration and national identity in Eurasia. Her new book is Why Control Immigration? Strategic Uses of Migration Management in Russia, published by the University of Toronto Press. Here's Kress Shank. So let's just start by having you introduce yourself, you know, state your name and, and who you are, what you do, etc. Hi, I'm Kress Shank. I'm an associate professor of political science at Nazarbayev University in Kazakhstan. I work on the politics of immigration control, uh, which uh, kind of laps over into uh, studies of national identity, as well as just kind of politics in general, since immigration is such a hot um, political topic. Um, looking at immigration and how countries control immigration really kind of opens up a window into how politics functions in countries more generally. And, and how, did you, how did you get interested in this topic in reference to Russia? So when I was writing my dissertation or preparing for my dissertation, I got really interested in immigration generally, and I was studying Russian politics. And um, I went to the field thinking that I was going to look at um, housing, immigrant housing in Moscow, um, because there was one article in Rasiska Gazeta that said that housing was being distributed really inequitably and ghettos were being created for migrants, and this was a really abysmal and bad situation. Um, I got to Russia and um, realized that that article really didn't have anything to do with the real situation of migration on the ground. So like most field research situations, I totally shifted my, um, my topic and ended up uh, looking at the policies that were in place that were also not really working very well to control immigration, but why these were political and how um, kind of what the backstories were um, behind why policies were being used and created, what it was that wasn't getting, um, what it was that was getting in the way of those working, etc. Um, so I realized this was a very, you know, very contentious political issue and um, lots of things to kind of be uncovered. You know, it's interesting. I mean, for, for people like myself and others who, you know, pay attention to contemporary Russia on a, you know, day-to-day, -day, if not weekly basis, 
uh, the issues of immigration and migration aren't necessarily one of the main concerns for so-called Russia watchers to pay any attention to, even though you know Russia has a really large immigrant population. The immigrant uh, labor flows uh, are, are quite substantial and really compared to say it really fits within the United States and Europe in terms of it as a as a issue of governance, but also a political issue. So how do you find, like, how is, is immigration or migration dealt with? Is it not dealt with? What is your, your view on how it's addressed today in, in for, for people who monitor Russia and the scholarship? In the scholarship, um, you're right. It's a really under, um, it's, it's, it's really an issue that doesn't receive the attention that's due. Um, now that said, there are quite a lot of scholars working on immigration issues in Russia, um, usually though not from the political perspective. So among political scientists, there's really a very small handful of us uh, working on immigration. And that's really a pity because uh, it really does demonstrate so many um, political dynamics. And I think that it also gives us an opportunity to compare, like you suggest, across uh, cases across Russia and other immigrant receiving cases, which is something that we don't really do when it comes to Russia. We're really very hesitant to compare Russia and the United States um, for obvious reasons, right? Because they're just completely different. And there's all sorts of baggage that comes with that. But the reality is that when it comes to a specific policy area like immigration control, there's actually quite a lot in common that would benefit from uh, a comparative analysis. So I think um, if we were to get immigration studies more on the agenda for Russia watchers, I think there would be a lot of value and a lot of mileage that we could get in terms of reframing how we look at Russia more generally. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that, you know, I think it was Barack Obama who made this quite erroneous but famous statement about nobody wants to come, nobody's immigrating to Russia, right? And and there's an assumption that, you know, immigrants only come to places that we in the West or United States in particular are seen as, you know, desirable. And Russia doesn't really fall into a desirable nation for people to go to. And in fact, most of the, the you know, media discourse about Russia and population movements is people immigrating out of Russia, right? Issues of brain drain, people leaving, going to Europe, etc. So I, I, do you think that that also contributes to a lack of attention to this issue? I'm sure that does. Um, but of course, that's only part of the story, right? All of those things are true. Yes, people leave Russia um, for all sorts of reasons. But Russia is a, it's a huge destination. So it and Germany tend to vie for a second largest receiving country in the world right after the United States. So, I mean, this is a huge immigration magnet. Um, and to ignore it for various reasons, which not only Russia watchers do this, but also immigration studies um, people, immigration studies scholars tend to leave Russia out of their analysis. And this is because it's hard to research. Um, maybe the data isn't as reliable. Um, it's, there, it's kind of a big learning curve to figure out how Russia fits into uh, immigrant receiving countries. And this is a huge mistake, I think. Um, so I think that there's a lot that Russia can really demonstrate, uh, but it does have to be kind of put on the agenda, which is really an uphill battle that me and a couple of my, uh, my small group of, uh, of, of colleagues working on the issue are, are really keen to uh, engage in. So, so your new book is called Why Control Immigration? Strategic Uses of Migration Management in Russia. And before we get to this question of why control immigration, t- talk a bit more about Russia as an immigration magnet. So there's a, a number of factors that really solidify Russia's place as a migrant receiving country. And these factors really make the migrant flows into Russia resilient to things like economic crisis or anything else that might disrupt immigration flows. Um, one of these factors is the colonial or colonial-like relationships that Russia has with former Soviet countries. So this could include things like language, norms, values, institutions. 
So the major donor countries to Russia are Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan. Armenia has had a big influx of uh, immigrants to Russia in the first part of this year. But these are all former Soviet countries. And I think that the colonial relationships or former colonial relationships um, really contribute to this. Does this mean that you know, language is still shared, norms are still shared, values, institutions? Um, not necessarily. Um, the further we get away from uh, the Soviet Union, these these relationships become complicated, um, but in the same, uh, on the other hand, uh, the the relationships and these sorts of norms and values and um, assumptions are also kind of habitual, and so they kind of create these resilient paths of immigration. And part of that is that um, there's networks of migrants now that are really experienced in going to Russia. So migrants from Uzbekistan, from Tajikistan, um, they want to go to places where they know people, that um, they can have friends that can help them adapt, to help them to solve problems, to figure out how to make things work for them in Russia. And um, because there are large flows of migrants into Russia from these countries, uh, it makes it a a more maybe safe bet uh, in terms of migration choice. Another big factor that makes Russia really attractive is comparative economic development, comparative economic vibrancy. Um, There's ample jobs for people coming from uh, Central Asia, especially compared to what's available at home. And this is both because there aren't enough Russians to do the work that needs to be done, and also because there are increasingly jobs that Russians don't want to do. So the first part of this is... um, owes to the fact that Russia is in a demographic crisis. And this essentially means that there's not enough workers to do the jobs that need to be done to keep Russia economically healthy. And the working age population is decreasing every year. So migrant workers are really the only solution to this problem. Certainly there's pronatalist policies, there's workplace safety policies in place, but these are really long-term policies. In order to in order to meet labor gaps, immigration is really the only option for Russia. But the other part of that story is that Russia has a segmented labor market, and that means that there's jobs that Russians don't want to do that migrants will do. And having a seg- segmented labor migrant, having a segmented labor market is a pretty normal um, aspect of a developed labor migrant, is a pretty normal aspect of having a developed labor market. Um, but it's a reality that isn't well understood in Russia. So sometimes you'll hear uh, statements like, if there's a million unemployed people in Russia, that means there's a, a million too many migrants. And this act <laughs> this actually doesn't make a lot of sense because unemployed people can be across skill levels. Uh, it may be an engineer who doesn't want to or can't work in construction for whatever reason. Um, also, citizens tend to be more sedentary. Uh, they don't want to move across the country in order to take a job um, just because they're unemployed. Rather, they'll just kind of wait until um, until they can find a job, until the labor market changes, or until they reskill or something like this. Um, so migrants are more able to flexibly fill in labor gaps. Another part of the dynamic that really contributes to economic relationships between Central Asia and Russia is that the economies are pretty integrated, um, which means that Central Asian economies are still pretty ruble dependent. So when we saw the economic crisis in 2014, the ruble crisis, Um, there was a lot of expectation that migrants would go home because the jobs were drying up, there wasn't going to be enough workplaces, people weren't going to be able to pay uh, wages and things like this. And I think there was a little bit of movement back towards Central Asia, but migrants very quickly realized that um, they weren't able to get jobs at home. Um, The values of their currency were also affected by the ruble crisis. And so going home really wasn't a solution. And I think all of these factors together, whether it's the the cultural factors or the social factors or the economic factors, these really keep migrants looking towards Russia as a destination. There are certainly alternative destinations 
for Central Asian migrants, but I don't see um, these alternative destinations overtaking Russia anytime soon. Yeah, I, I do know, like, for example, I think it's Kyrgyzstan. The last statistic I saw a few years ago was, uh, you know, over 20 percent of its economy is based on remittances back from migrant labor from Russia. Is that still the case? Um, yes, the, the 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 remittance dependence is really really high, and in Tajikistan it's even more so. So as much as like fifty percent of their economy comes from remittances. Right. So what types of labor are migrant uh, labor migrants working in in Russia, and how many are? What's the estimates for the numbers? So migrants work in construction. They work in retail, like in bazaars and markets. Um, sometimes they'll do factory work. Sometimes they'll do agricultural work. Um, hospitality industry is becoming more and more um, kind of filled with migrants. Uh, janitorial services are a big migrant uh, migrant industry. And the numbers are, well, a little bit speculative. The numbers of official migrants are around 2 million a year. And I'm talking about basically low-skilled labor migrants coming from Central Asia and other former Soviet republics. The estimates of illegal migrants or those migrants that are not quite getting the documents that they need in order to work officially are really wildly different. Um, and I think it, they range anywhere from 5 to 10 million a year. Um, and it's really hard to know because there's not really a systematically used methodology that has been developed and tested and used year by year to kind of track the number of illegal migrants. So it's really kind of our best guess. But my guess is usually around five, six million um, migrants altogether. So however many of those are legal um, kind of subtracts from that, meaning that if you have 2 million legal migrants, you have about 4 million illegal migrants or undocumented migrants. And and how does it, so, in, and you also have an open visa system, right? So it's even harder to track who's coming across the border and staying. Um, it, so my question is, how does that factor in? But also, it, are there migrants going to certain geographical areas in Russia where they're more concentrated? And are they also seasonal? Do they go to Russia for a period of time and then go back to their home country? Or do they tend to remain there? Yes, all of those are important factors. And um, they do in, indeed uh, have kind of impacts on what we see in Russia. So um, there is a visa-free regime uh, between the countries of the Commonwealth of Independent States. So this means, yes, all of the Central Asian countries that are the major donors to Russia, uh, citizens of those countries don't need a visa to go to Russia. They do need to get work documents once they get to Russia. So in order to work officially, legally, um, they should get uh, what's called a patent, a labor patent. And um, this is just a, a labor card that allows them to work. And they can get this after they arrive. Um, for citizens of the Eurasian Economic Union, they don't need this labor permission. All they need to do is sign a contract with an employer. So there's a little bit of different nuance depending on what countries people are coming from, what countries migrants are coming from. So migrants from Kyrgyzstan don't need to have a labor patent because they're a part of the Eurasian Economic Union, and they can basically work freely as long as they have a labor contract. In terms of different destinations that migrants go to, yes, yeah, certainly there are uh, bigger migrant recipient regions. Um, this tends to be kind of economically driven, as I think all of the patterns of migration are basically economically driven, because it's for the purpose largely of labor, for work, to make as much money as you can, um, then go home. And yeah, these, these patterns are quite circular. So uh, migrants tend to go for a short period of time, um, go back home, come again. Um, and yeah, these patterns are, are quite circular. And we, we see large numbers of migrants in basically the big cities. Um, so big cities that have construction, that have uh, markets and uh, bazaars, that have um, uh, factories, things like this, um, but also in agricultural regions as well. So you'll see some migrants working in agriculture 
And so there's a variety of occupations, but it is mostly an urban sort of phenomenon. As somebody, of course, living in the United States and that, but and also somebody who, like myself who grew up in Los Angeles, a lot of what you're describing sounds pretty normal in terms of, uh, you know, immigration, labor, the issues of that, where people work, where people go when they come to another country to work. So uh, given this, how does – and given the fact that immigration is such a big topic now in the United States but also in Europe, how do you – how do you, how does Russia fit into this more regional and global picture of labor migration? Well, in many ways, immigration is a political issue in Russia in the same way that it's a political issue in all of these other regions. And so I do think there's a lot of continuities. There's a lot of similar types of factors in terms of labor market pressures, in terms of public reception, in terms of politicians' responses. Now, this is really interesting, actually. This is a, a really interesting aspect of studying Russia. Because in the few studies that we have by migration scholars that are trying to look at kind of large questions of what's driving immigration patterns and flows and policies and things like this, there are a couple of studies that look at the impact of authoritarianism or the impact of non-democracy on immigration control. And um, this, these studies tend to make really broad generalizations about how non-democratic countries function. And I think that this is a mistake. It's a mistake that Russia really highlights because one of the assumptions that these studies make is that non-democratic countries don't have to pay attention to public opinion because policymaking is not deliberative. It doesn't involve a lot of public input. But the Russian case really shows that the government absolutely has to pay attention to public moods about immigration. So in Russia, you see a lot of evidence that there is general widespread anti-immigrant sentiment. And this comes from public opinion polls. It comes from media, social media. And politicians respond to this, even if their electoral mandate is not directly affected by public opinion. So this is a really interesting dynamic that comes out in the Russian case that makes it pretty similar to other immigrant-receiving countries. There is an additional layer of uh, kind of interesting dynamics that go on here, and that is that you don't see Putin making inflammatory anti-immigrant statements. And I think this is because national identity is a really sticky issue in Russia. So even though there are absolutely anti-immigrant impulses in society, and these do tend to converge around ethnic categories, Russia also has a multinational population, and any potentially racist, racist statements can alienate ethnic minorities. And so Putin is really, really careful about the types of statements that he makes about immigration. So my argument is that anti-immigrant populism or anti-immigration rhetoric is devolved down to the lower levels, to governors, to mayors. And it's up to these leaders to maintain a sort of anti-migrant social contract, which basically means that they have to make sure that public sentiment doesn't get out of control. Often the ways that these leaders make sure, you know, try to keep public opinion under wraps is by making statements about immigration. They may take a, uh, a, a tough stance on illegal immigration. They may report certain types of data, which is usually almost always only one part of the story, or it's data that's presented not with a, a lot of nuance. And um, I think what's interesting about this is that even though this devolution of anti-migrant rhetoric is a is a particularly Russia story, um, I think it's a deliberate strategy on the part of the regime. Um, in the European context, you may see this role of populist rhetoric um, being exercised by political outsiders that may not actually win elections. I think the social value of the populist rhetoric is really quite similar across these cases. And so this is really something that we could probably dig a bit deeper into um, in order to see how Russia is similar to some of the other immigrant receiving countries. Yeah, it's, it's actually really interesting in this spec because, you know, in the mid-2000s, you did have the beginnings of 
kind of organized anti-immigrant movements, uh, you know, still on the street, but organized nonetheless. And the the Russian state has been pretty harsh in cracking down on these. So, you know, it, it seems that they're they're in an interesting bind because they they want to tamp down on this this anti-immigrant populist rhetoric on the one hand they they need migrants and there's a demand for migrant labor on the other but at the same time they 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 have this simmering on the ground level of uh, you know animosity towards immigrants and you see this in a in a couple of the violent outbreaks that have occurred over the last decade or so so and and this goes to something that you described in terms of migration or immigration management in Russia is you describe it describe it as a multi-level balancing act. So uh, what do you mean by this? Well, in short, what this means is that there's a whole lot of moving parts involved in producing any sort of image of immigration control. There's political actors at all sorts of different levels, different regions, different relationships to the government in Moscow, to other elites in the region. There are various actors that have different ways of doing things, that have different abilities to get the things that they want, that have different strategies um, to relate to the people around them. And each of these actors and the agencies that they work for have a role to play in creating a certain image of immigration control that the government wants to project. And it is a very fine balance, right, between tapping into this anti-immigrant sentiment and making sure that it doesn't bubble out of control in a way that is going to be destabilizing to the regime. So this multi-level balancing act is the way that political actors juggle the responsibilities and the benefits of their positions using both formal using both formal or law-based strategies and informal or relationship-based or off-the-books sort of strategies in order to meet their goals. Essentially, this multi-level balancing act is a patronage system, which is a kind of cool part of the analysis because in looking at immigration control as a patronage system in Russia, what we can do is we can kind of transfer the findings um, from the book to other policy areas and other political relations throughout the Russian system and test whether those patronage relationships um, are similar across other policy areas. And I think that we we would probably find that there's a lot of similarities um, between how Russia manages migration and how they manage party relations or business relations or any other types of policy areas. But what makes the balancing act a balancing act is that it's not always clear how politicians should prioritize their activities and their interests and, and the, the different um, the different activities the different, um, what makes this balancing act a balancing act is that it's not always clear how politicians should prioritize their different activities and interests because things could really easily spin out of control. And sometimes they do. Um, and when the situation spins out of control or a scandal erupts or a crisis erupts, this gives us really important clues about how patronage breaks down in Russia. So again, it's not solely an immigration story. It's also a political story about how political actors relate to each other. So in the analysis, there's a couple of key responsibilities that I think emerge in terms of what political actors, especially at the regional level and in the bureaucracies, what they have to produce in order to be seen as doing a good job, as fulfilling their responsibilities. So one of these things is uh, producing political stability. So again, making sure that there's not protests or outcry against immigration, that there's not big riots or what whatever might be seen as uh, destabilizing. Another thing more generally, not necessarily specific to immigration control, that regional leaders have to produce is electoral results in support of United Russia. And this is, again, just kind of a patronage responsibility that regional leaders have to give to display their loyalty, to show that they're able to mobilize their publics, to show that they're able to mobilize their electoral commissions, to show that they're able to mobilize um, displays of political loyalty. 
Another thing is economic growth. So regional leaders are responsible on some level for producing economic growth, for making sure that the statistics look good. But specific to immigration control, there's also a couple of things that regional leaders, whether it's governors or mayors, really need to produce in order to be seen as fulfilling their patronage functions. Um, One is to manage public moods, and they can do this, again, through populist rhetoric by kind of promising certain immigration outcomes, by reporting certain immigration outcomes. It's also their job to make sure that the state agencies involved in immigration control, whether this is the Federal Migration Service or the Labor Service or the police, that these agencies at least appear coordinated and appear disciplined, and they aren't kind of rampantly taking advantage of their position. Of course, they are taking advantage of their position in many cases, but it's important that regional leaders make it appear as though there's some semblance of control. And then the final thing that regional leaders are really obligated to produce is certain statistics that create a picture of immigration that the public will accept. And in Russia, this has been kind of a trial and error sort of issue, um, figuring out what level of immigration the public will accept. And um, they did settle on a, a number of, you know, roughly two million, two to four million legal migrants um, is a pretty acceptable number of migrants that the public doesn't really outcry over. But what this means is that only a portion of the migrant labor market can then be be legalized. So if you you only want two to four million migrants in your country legally, then um, either you need to find a way to keep them out, which is not advantageous for a number of reasons, or you have to find a way of packaging it in a way that, um, that makes the official statistics look the way that you want them to. And I think that Russia has done that using a couple of different mechanisms, policy mechanisms. Um, and this really s- helps them to strike the balance between public demands but also economic need. So if you really clamp down on immigration, you don't have the workers that you need. So you want immigrants to come in and you probably really need more immigrants than the public really wants. Um, And what that means inevitably is that you have an acceptable number of illegal immigrants. And this is actually true, not just of Russia, but this is true of other countries as well. There is usually a permissible level of illegal immigration that the uh, that the government tolerates um, in order to kind of balance all of these competing interests. And what about the role of uh, local economic elites? Because on the one hand, the deference of regional political elites is to Moscow, but you know, as we know, Moscow is very far away, and they also have to balance the the demands of local economic elites, which I would assume would be the, some of the main advocates for you know, or the the need for immigrant labor. So how do how do local economic elites play? What role do they play in this? It really varies. Uh, some local economic elites. Um, are happy to use illegal labor of migrants. Um, It's very rare to see these economic elites really lobby for more open policies in Russia. So you don't really have a kind of a pro-migrant lobby um, that is advocating for easier access to immigration documents, legal status, integration, um, worker protections, whatever may come along with that package of, of law. So you really don't see that um, very much at all. But I, I think that there is uh, a sort of tacit understanding that the interests of economic elites can be solved through the use of illegal immigration, through the use of illegal labor with impunity. And um, so this is an interesting part of the story. It is kind of an off-the-book sort of solution that happens probably more in Russia than in other places. Though, I mean, I think that the use of illegal immigrate, the use of illegal labor with impunity also happens in a number of 
developed countries. So right now you, in the U.S., you see it, lots of immigration raids, but not a lot of employers being prosecuted as a result of those immigration raids. And so what this means is that there is this tacit understanding that employers are less likely to be prosecuted for violations of immigration legislation than the workers are themselves. Yeah, and I would imagine too, in terms of the on, also at the local level in regional areas in Russia, there is you know the informal aspect of the relationship between business and political elites, and the use of say even you know police and migrant officers to you know go put pressure on elites that are out of favor or not not I'm, what I mean here is the the role of corruption, right? It's also another lever of 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 for corruption in in the regions. So I would imagine that a lot of this informality of Russian politics plays a major role in and that this relationship as well. Absolutely. And of course these things are really difficult to kind of uncover empirically. Um, because the nature of informality is that it's kind of off the books. Um, but I think that by doing the type of really deep uh, regional analysis, doing field research in a number of regions, these relationships really do kind of come to the surface. So I worked for the research on the book. I worked in a couple of different regions. I was in Moscow. I was also in the Sverdlovsk region and in Krasnodar. And these have very widely varying patronage networks. And this makes some regions easier to kind of easier to study because the relationships are much more open and kind of talked about and analyzed and maybe even criticized, meaning if there's kind of ties between business elites and um, the state, it's more uh, civil society has a more kind of active ro role in um, criticizing that. In other regions like Krasnodar, these things are all very hush-hush. Um, the relationship between business and the state is very close, but also very opaque. So in, in that sense, you can, you, can kind of tie, you can follow the ties of political leaders and business ownership, um, but digging beneath the surface, getting down to the layers of how that affects immigration and the use of immigrant labor is really quite difficult. Um, but nevertheless, we see contours of how patronage relationships um, function across the regions. Um, and these are absolutely connected to the use of migrant labor and how, how um, well, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> so these are absolutely have illustrations in uh, the migration sphere and how migration corruption schemes evolve, how they're exposed, um, maybe how they operate for a long time without, without being exposed or operate for a long period of time when everybody knows how they work, but nevertheless, nobody's really exposing them. They're kind of a, a, a feature of the, of the system. Right. Um, you know, it, it, what's interesting about Russia, too, is because it has such a long border. Um, it has borders with Central Asia. It has uh, – well, it has as migrants from Central Asia. It has migrants from the Caucasus. And it also has migrants from its western borderland, so Ukraine and Moldova. Uh, so and, – and as we know, when it comes to issues of immigration, questions of culture and race become, you know, completely intertwined with this. So how are these various groups viewed and, and treated differently? There is absolutely a difference in terms of how different immigrant groups are received, how they're integrated, um, what kind of sectors of the economy they work in. So for Central Asian migrants – it's kind of a double-edged sword. They're seen as the other. They're seen as ethnic minorities. They're seen as religious minorities. They're seen as something that's maybe potentially dangerous uh, in terms of security, terrorism, and all of these sorts of things. On the other hand, I encountered a number of people that reported that Central Asian migrants were really valued for their hard work, for their um, commitment to not drinking, meaning that their religious commitments really turned them into good and reliable workers. 
over and above, for example, workers from Ingushetia who liked to fight with each other or Dagestanis who were troublemakers. And so this was really interesting sort of observation that Central Asian migrants in some ways play the same role as Mexican migrants have played in the United States. They become a very essential part of the labor market and they're seen as valuable. Um, now, again, of course, this is—they're not uniformly seen as uh, as a benefit. Um, there's racism, there's discrimination, there's othering of various types, but there is nuance to this. And it does vary depending on who you talk to, whether you talk to employers that have direct relationships with migrants, whether you talk to people in the public that really have no relationship with migrants themselves, but read what is written in the media or what have you. Now, for migrants coming from Ukraine and other Eastern European countries, the situation is a bit different. Um, certainly this is because Ukrainians, for example, are Slavic, so there's fewer racial or ethnic issues that create discrimination, visible discrimination, or discrimination based on visible characteristics. Um, however, that doesn't mean that the, that the situation for migrants from Ukraine um, is easy. We saw that uh, in 2014, as a result of war in, in Ukraine, there was a large refugee crisis going into Europe, going into Russia from Ukraine. And um, the Russian government, I think, did a really robust job demonstrating serious political commitment and will to enfranchise these Ukrainians. They simplified a lot of laws. They changed a lot of legal mechanisms that allowed Ukrainian migrants easier access to the labor market, to the labor market, to citizenship, etc. Nevertheless, it's still complicated and it's still difficult for migrants coming from Ukraine to get the documents that they need. Um, in practice, uh, bureaucratic barriers are still quite large. <laughs> the bureaucratic procedures that migrants have to go through to get the types of documents that they need um, is really onerous. And this is no less true for Ukrainians than it is for Central Asians. We also have migrants coming from other countries, from Vietnam, from China, even North Korea. Um, and each of these groups have their own nuances, the types of labor that they do, um, the mechanisms that they use to get into the country because they need visas and therefore need to be sponsored by employers in order to get work visas. Um, so there's a number of different legal and social and labor market nuances that these categories of migrants have as well. Why control immigration? Well, it's politics. It's all about politics. So politics is really about people getting stuff. And that stuff can be tangible. It can be money. It can be resources. Or it can be any number of intangible benefits like political power, votes, loyalty, trust. Um, so anytime we're talking about people trying to attain these things, we're really firmly in the realm of politics. Um, so I think the desire and attempt to control immigration then is an a desire and an attempt to get stuff, to get either money or resources or political power or to gain loyalty and trust of the public, to gain loyalty and trust of the business elite. Now, I'm not really talking about like some sort of value maximizing, maximizing gains or power hungry politicians that are bent on lining their pockets as much as possible. Those things happen, but I think there's a bigger point when we're talking about the politics of immigration control and why it's beneficial and why it's in the interests of elites to try to control immigration or to look to make it look like they're controlling immigration. And that bigger point is that in every political system, political elites really have to please a number of different voices in society in order to get what they want, whether that's to stay in office, to have good approval ratings, to have access to the spoils of corruption, whatever it is that we're talking about. And in the Russian case, political elites at various levels can get these things that they want by playing the immigration control game. So I think it looks different for different political elites, um, different elites located at different places in this multi-level balancing act. 
so for example, um, if I am a policeman in the Ministry of Internal Affairs, it's simply my job to produce certain indicators of immigration control. So my job is being evaluated on how many migrants I arrest, how many raids are conducted, how many migrants we deport in a given year. And it's my job that's on the line, my job security, my ability to be promoted, um, that depends on producing these visible indicators of immigration control. For people, uh, for elites at higher levels in the political system, showing that immigration numbers are under control is really important. Um, but like I said before, so is making sure that there's enough workers to keep the, the economy vibrant. So there's these con contradictory goals um, that require attention. And political elites don't want to alienate either side, business or society. So they really are trying to kind of balance this. And this is absolutely a political game that they're playing um, that is sometimes works and sometimes doesn't work. And finally, um, immigration, or at least the outcry, the, both the political and, and, and public outcry in the United States and in Europe over immigration, particularly over the last couple of years, is also connected to anxieties of uh, you know national identity, uh, culture. It's always described as the immigrant is somehow tainting or destroying or weakening you know some sort of national cultural values. Uh, how does this play? In, how does this issue of national identity and immigration play in Russia? Especially since for Russia it's an interesting case because. The Soviet Union, uh, the legacy of the Soviet Union is that, you know, these people were once, they were all part of one, you know, nation or multinational state. So, so how does that past also figure into this? That is a very complicated question. And I think that the evidence that you see in Russia, kind of the answers that you come to on that question really vary. Um, because on the one hand, migrants are seen as kind of brothers of the Soviet Union, they're kind of compatriots, and even legally, um, there's a program on inviting compatriots from the former Soviet Union to come to Russia and get citizenship. And these policies are open to immigrants coming from Central Asia as much as they're open to immigrants coming from Ukraine. On the other hand, you see a lot of xenophobia and anxiety about national identity. Um, and I think that in Russia, these these questions are just really, really open and contentious and deeply felt, but not settled at all. And in that sense, immigration is really complicated and immigrants find themselves in a really precarious position because um, in some ways they are the same. In some ways, they are different. An example of this is sometimes um, from kind of stories we hear from the field is that a migrant, two migrants may be talking to a policeman and the policeman is trying to determine their immigration status. And one immigrant may have all of their documents in order. Everything's perfect. They have everything that they need. Everything is legal, stamped with the right color of stamps and all of these sorts of things. Um, but they don't speak Russian or their Russian is really poor. The other migrant speaks really good Russian. Um, they really understand the cultural nuances of how things work in Russia, but they may not have their documents in order. But which one gets in trouble? The one that doesn't speak Russian is the one that is extorted, that gets asked to pay a bribe. And I think that this is not necessarily an ethnic issue, but it's about layers of cultural understandings and integration that is more complex than just putting a label of um, Central Asian, Uzbek, or Slavic on these migrants. There's so many different layers of kind of cultural understandings um, and adaptation practices, familiarity with the, the types of informal ways that things are done in Russia that makes this question about national identity and immigration a really complex one that I'm not really sure we have any clear answers on. One kind of joke I like to tell myself is that Russia is not really at the point where we can talk about 
just normal discrimination in the labor market because there's so many other serious problems that immigrants have to deal with that the types of discrimination that we see on the basis of ethnicity, whether we're talking about labor markets in Europe or the U.S. or um, other places, um, Russia's just not there yet. It's not ready to talk about those ethnic relationships because there's so many other serious problems getting in the way of people just getting things done, whether that's having the right documents, whether it's interacting with state officials in a way that um, is clear or predictable or what have you. Um, So I think that that makes the question of ethnicity and national identity extremely, extremely complicated in the Russian case. That was Koresh Shank, an assistant professor of political science at Nazarbayev University, specializing in the politics of immigration and national identity in Eurasia. Her new book is Why Control Immigration? Strategic Uses of Migration Management in Russia, published by the University of Toronto Press. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it is not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at srbpodcast.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage, and you can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from srbpodcast.org as well. Until next time, bye.